Hey y'all, Sam here. As you'll hear, this episode with Tam, Danielle, and Domenico was recorded a couple days ago, before Hillary Clinton was in the news for a couple of reasons this weekend. We'll be back to talk about all of that in an episode Monday afternoon. Until then, enjoy this episode. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our second Monday Mail episode, where we will spend time answering your questions about the issues, what we see on the campaign trail, and anything else that you're curious about. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. You are hearing this on or after Monday, September 12th. But... We are actually sitting here in a studio on Friday, September 9th. So if there is any sort of crazy news this weekend, never fear. We will be in your podcast feed very soon talking about it. All right, here we go into the mailbag. Question one. It comes from Andrew from Phoenix. He wrote, hey, NPR politics team. Hey, Andrew. My name is Andrew Jones from Phoenix by way of California, and my question is about the Electoral College. Every four years, I seem to forget how it works because it's so dang confusing. Can you guys break it down in your easy-to-understand NPR politics way? Well, I'll take Hmm. this one because I kind of went down the Electoral College rabbit hole on this. The first part of this that people should understand is that there are 538 total electoral votes and you need a majority of those votes to win. So if you divide 538 by two, what do you get? 269. 269, 269 is a tie. So you have to get 270 for a majority. Now, don't ask Tamara to do math. Well, you know, (laughs) clearly 270 to win. It's a website. There you go. And 538 is a website uh, website, and and that's where their name comes from. It's 538 because of the number of electoral votes. So (laughs) what each state does is this is by Uh, Winner take all. So in the primary process, we talked about how some states were proportional, where they might go based on the vote totals uh, and divvy up the vote proportionally. That's not what happens in the general election in the fall. In the general election in the fall, if Ohio has 18 electoral votes, it doesn't get divided up 10-8. It gets winner take all 18 to 0, whether or not you won by one point or won by 20 points, which is why you see so many candidates focus so strongly on those competitive battleground states because California, New York, Texas, and we can talk about Texas a little bit later, but those have so strongly been in favor of the Democrats or Republicans, and they're so expensive to campaign in and advertise in that there's no use in campaigning there because you're unlikely to change the outcome. Just to add... A slight NPR complication to it. Mm-hmm. An NPR politics, what would we call it? Footnote? An NPR politics footnote. There are two states where it is not winner take all. Nebraska. That's correct. And Maine. Oh. Right. And Barack Obama, we should say, won that one electoral vote, one of the electoral votes in uh, Nebraska in 2008 because it is centered around Omaha, which has a much larger non white population than the rest of the state, and he wound up winning it. Republicans are always sort of flirting with uh, that one electoral vote in Maine and haven't been successful so far. And Donald Trump has campaigned in Maine and Hillary Clinton has campaigned in Omaha. They are at the moment fighting for those single electoral votes. Um, And I want to say one thing about the history of this, because I went back and looked at the history of the Electoral College and how it sort of formed, because I hear all the time people saying, why don't we just do it by the popular vote? It makes no sense. How come we don't do it that way? And when you go back and you look, they actually had four 
uh, things on the table at the Constitutional Convention. One was what we do now. The other was that Congress chooses the president. Another was that state legislatures would pick the president. And the other was a direct popular vote. Now, they all had drawbacks. The popular vote was seen as something that wouldn't work necessarily in a country of four million people where campaigns, by the way, were not encouraged to happen nationally and that they felt the bigger states would have too much say and that the people would not have enough information since people weren't encouraged to campaign. The idea was that the man should not seek the office. The office should seek the man. So that is a far cry from what we do today. (laughs) And it actually wound up getting changed uh, some 24 years later in uh, 1800 when they had to come up with a different way because there was a tie in the electoral process and they wound up changing it again. Memorably depicted in the musical yes, Hamilton, correct. the election of 1800. Yes, I've heard, I've heard that that's a thing now. I've it's heard that's a very popular musical. It's gotten a little attention. Okay, Andrew had one more little question here. Um, he says, how does someone win the popular vote but lose in the electoral college and become president? That's a good question because if you were to campaign very strongly in uh, those battleground states and you won and ran up a huge margin in uh, those big states that are going to go one way or another, there's the conceivability that you could win the popular vote but lose narrowly in the electoral vote because you might lose by a point or two in some of those battleground states. And of course, we know that that happened in 2000 where uh, Al Gore won the popular vote but narrowly lost the election because of the electoral college in Florida. Democrats, of course, would still argue that if they kept counting the votes that they might have found 538 votes. Of course, that was stopped by the U.S. Supreme Court. You wound up with the popular vote winner losing uh, in uh, because the electoral college is what the Constitution demands. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Let's move on to Tim, who didn't say where he's from. So wherever you are, Tim, thanks for writing. He asks, here we go. I've heard a President Hillary Clinton might nominate then former President Obama to the Supreme Court. As a young former constitutional law professor with a high popularity rating, he'd be perfect. And the look on the Merrick Garland blocker's face would be priceless. How likely is that to happen? And what do you each think would happen if it did? Thank you, Tim. Also, shout out to Joey from Newberry Park, who had a similar question. So, thoughts? I don't think Obama wants that, right? Probably not. I mean, (laughs) honestly, he talked about making him some serious Tubmans, so he's probably going to go and do that. Um, Do we need to explain that joke? Well, so President Obama was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner right after or soon after Harriet Tubman was replacing uh, Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill or being mixed in. And he made the joke because you always say, like, you know, you're going to make, make, make some, some Benjamins because he's on the 100. But he said Tubman. So and he go. really could cash in. If Certainly. past presidents are a guide, he could make a ton of money. Yeah. And speeches. he's he's pretty young and probably will. But this is something that we throw around quite a bit as like a. You know, it would be really interesting is if Hillary Clinton, you know, or Mm -hmm. nominated Barack Obama. It's one of those theories that gets thrown out there. Um, There's no evidence for this being something that she's looking toward doing. The bigger likelihood is that he's going to go into uh, some form of private life and being able to run a foundation or raise some money for his library. uh, And that he's probably not all that interested in being the next Supreme Court nominee. It's something fun to talk about, but. Probably unlikely. I do not know President Obama. I don't know if that would be a compelling argument that would make him go, oh, good point. Never thought of that. (laughs) Okay, next up, here is a recorded message from Leah. 
My name is Leah. I'm from Atlanta, but I'm moving to the UK for grad school later this month. Don't worry, I've already submitted my absentee ballot request, but my question is about the protocol for voting from abroad. I know for the primary, the Democrats run the Democrats Abroad primary, in which registered voters can vote in person and polling places in their country of residence. Other countries, like France, use their embassies as polling places. So my question is, why can't the U.S. do something similar for the general election? All right, Danielle, this one is coming to you. Okay, so key difference here, first of all, is that primaries are run by the parties. Uh, The general election, you know, is run by different uh, voting not oh, precincts. But yeah, I no, mean, jurisdictions. It's run by go. the counties in every county in the country, which is a lot of counties. Yeah, right. the state sets the rules and it goes down to the county and goes down to each precinct. Right. So I reached out to uh, the Federal Voting Assistance Program, which is a governmental program that helps people overseas uh, to vote. And uh, the, a very nice public affairs specialist named Catherine Roddy, thank you, Catherine, <laughs> reached, got back to me, and she explained this. Democrats abroad did hold a global presidential primary in March. And the way that Catherine explained it is they had a single ballot selection that was offered worldwide. So wherever you were, apparently you got the same ballot. However, the way that she put it is U.S. citizens residing overseas cannot vote in person at embassies or consulates due to the thousands of jurisdiction and precinct ballots across the nation as U.S. elections are run by the states. So in other words, your ballot is just so particular that it just wouldn't work for you and all the other people who are around you who are presumably from other places than you. To all go vote at the same place. Because you're not just voting for president, presumably. You might be voting down ballot. Yeah. There we go. Okay, moving on. We dispatched with that. I feel good about this. (laughs) Well done. Here's a question from Nellie, who lives in Austin. She writes, hi there. Couple of things that have happened this week. One, the Dallas Morning News recommended a Hillary Clinton vote. I will add a side note. First time, like, ever that they've recommended a Democrat. And two... There's the latest Washington Post polls that show Clinton is up in Texas by a teensy margin, but still. So why is there so much caution and or outright dismissal of the possibility of Texas going blue? Latino registrations are up. Votes from people of color are higher in Texas during presidential election years. And these two latest developments show something happening. No, Nellie asks. So because of demographics, every year, every election cycle, we start to see people say, you know, could Texas go blue? And it's already, by the way, a majority minority state. As as confusing as that sounds, all it means is that the non-white vote is higher than the white vote uh, in the state. But it has a history of voting very strongly Republican. There is no statewide Democratic elected official in the state. The state Republican Party is far better financed and has run an operation that they're used to running. Um, That's not to say that the state couldn't be competitive or be more competitive than it's been in past years. I'd throw a little cold water on the Washington Post polls because they're conducted in sort of an experimental way online through SurveyMonkey, which a lot of people are trying to kind of figure out, but it's not necessarily um, the best methodology. I'm not saying that it might not be close, but let's see what real polls wind up showing. I will say one reason why Democrats are not really going there that strongly is because it's very expensive to try to flip a state like that. And they have a very wide path to winning 270 without having to go to Texas. Right. And one thing I would add is also that uh, one reason that demographics are not necessarily uh, predicted. Destiny. 
Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Demographics are not that same. One reason they are not is because there are different uh, turnout rates depending on the group. So Texas is a very heavily Hispanic state, for example. And so, yes, that because Hispanics tend to vote more Democratic, one would think that would push the state more Democratic, and that may be true. However, whites and blacks, for example, have much higher turnout rates than Hispanics do. Asians, likewise, by the way, have a lower turnout rate. And so, therefore, if you have a more Hispanic or Latino population, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to sway the vote by a proportional amount. And Texas has traditionally had more conservative Latinos, probably oh. the highest number of conservative Latinos than uh, anywhere else in the country. This election may change that somewhat with the rhetoric from Donald Trump, but let's see. Or maybe see. not. All right. Staying in the great state of Texas, here is a recorded question from Lauren from Dallas. Hey, Lauren here from Dallas, Texas, with a question about third party candidates. I have a lot of friends who are considering voting third party this year, but are a little nervous about doing so for fear of swaying the election towards either Trump or Clinton. I know that's something that we saw in the year 2000, but I'm wondering if we've ever seen that in a state as historically red as Texas. Are there any super blue or super red states that have actually made a difference in electoral college votes because of third party candidates? Okay, who wants to answer this one? Not me. Well, look no further than 1992 and 1996 when Ross Perot got 19% of the vote in 1992 and wound up pushing several states that would have been considered traditionally Republican uh, to Bill Clinton's column. Montana, for example. Bill Clinton won 37-35 over George H.W. Bush, and Ross Perot got 26% of the vote in Montana. So that's about as close as it can be. And not often that somebody wins a state with less than 40% of the vote, but that's what happened when you had a strong third-party candidate. Bill Clinton also won uh, West Virginia and Kentucky, Tennessee. Now, some of that's because he was a Southerner, but some of those Southern roots combined with Ross Perot's pulling away some Republicans certainly helped him across the line. Well, and one more thing I would add is that uh, one can imagine in an election like this with two major party candidates who are so heavily disliked, especially by people on the other side, it might make a lot of voters, even those who neither really love Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump, uh, might keep them from wanting to make a, you know, a protest vote. You know, if I am not a fan of Hillary Clinton and I'm a Democrat, but I really don't want to vote for Donald Trump, maybe I'm t hesitant to vote for Jill Stein because I don't want Donald Trump to win the election and vice versa for any, you know, reluctant, potentially Trump supporters. All right. Last question of the day from David in Winona, Minnesota. Hi, guys and gals. A quick question that's maybe more of an observation. Before the parties finished choosing their eventual nominees, it seemed trendy to say that when a president was running for re-election, the race becomes a referendum on the president. And when it's an open election, it becomes a referendum on the president's party. Would it be fair to say that the way Donald Trump has flipped that script and turned it into a referendum on him? And do you think Secretary Clinton has not fought harder for that spotlight, hoping for precisely that outcome? Thanks, David. You know, Hillary Clinton, of course, wants this to be an election that's a referendum on Donald Trump. He's it less is, popular than she it, is. But it's historically difficult for somebody to follow a member of their own party in the White House who served two terms. Mm -hmm. So when it can become something that's not an election on that and you have it as somebody who's made these kinds of outrageous comments as Donald Trump has and turn this election into a referendum on him is clearly something that the Clinton campaign would welcome. But I would add it depends on the audience she's talking to, right? Because one thing we saw at the DNC 
was, you know, President Obama got up and spoke. Michelle Obama got up and spoke. President Obama's achievements were very much touted. Why? Because Democrats, even those who liked Bernie Sanders, a lot of Democrats really love President Obama. So among a certain crowd of Americans, i.e. Democrats, yeah, I, I believe Hillary Clinton would probably be okay with it being a referendum on President Obama. One interesting dynamic that's happened this week is Hillary Clinton has started running on a more affirmative message. She has cut back on the attacks on Donald Trump a little bit and has been talking more about her motivations, her history. Now, why did this happen? For weeks, she's been laying very low and letting Donald Trump be Donald Trump, letting him get into a a fight with the Khan family, letting him talk about Second Amendment people, letting his controversies roll on and garner all that attention. And she's been happy not to have it. Well, in recent weeks, Donald Trump has been sticking to a teleprompter. He hasn't been making some of the same gaffes. And there's been more focus on her with the emails and the foundation. And so she realized this was actually turning into something of a referendum on her. And she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. If that's going to be the case, then I'd better have an affirmative message. Right. Well, and Donald Trump started to turn that on her. He started to say, look, look at me. I'm out doing all these rallies. What is she doing? She's laying low. She's doing fundraisers. Perhaps it was perceived that that was a damaging message to be running against. All right. So that is it for the mail today. As always, you can catch more of our political coverage at NPRPolitics.org. A reminder to write us with your questions or record them and send them to NPRPolitics at NPR.org. We read them all and we will be back in your podcast feed with a new episode very, very soon. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.